1: For the past year, a brutal war has rocked Ethiopia. What started as a violent conflict between the government and regional leadership in the north is now an all-out civil war breaking down along ethnic lines, threatening to destabilize the entire region. With few international journalists granted permission to travel into Ethiopia, it's been challenging to know what's actually unfolding. Vice News' Julia Steers brings us Inside. It's been a year since Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed triggered a civil war. The country is still mired in conflict.
0: Now he's asking citizens to take up arms, and the nation is in a state of emergency.
2: Leaving thousands dead, two million displaced, fueling famine, and sparking a wave of atrocities. The escalating hostilities in Tigray are now set to tear Ethiopia apart. Massacres,
0: gang raids, and ethnic cleansing. The United Nations calls them war crimes and stresses. They have been committed
1: on both sides of the conflict. The United States from the very beginning of this conflict has put increased pressure on a government with which we have one of the deepest and most important partnerships Mm -hmm. on the continent. And it's just unfortunate that, that the conditions just continue to deteriorate.
2: This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Zemros. And I'm Julia Steers, correspondent and Nairobi Bureau Chief for Vice News.
1: So, Julia, you've been covering Ethiopia for years. And I know very few international journalists have been able to travel there recently because of the Civil War, but you were able to get into the country to cover this conflict.
2: We had been trying to get into the country since the war started last November, and we had visa requests that were repeatedly declined by the government. So finally, after months of directly lobbying the prime minister's office for access, our team was finally let in, and we spent about a month on the ground.
1: It's never a good sign when a government doesn't want to let journalists in. So I'm really curious to know more about this, but... Just starting off here, can you give me some basic background on what's going on in Ethiopia?
2: So to understand the context of the current conflict, I think it's important to know Ethiopia is Africa's second most populous country. And it's divided into nine states along ethnic lines. So it's something called an ethno-federalist system. And Ethiopia has been really proud for a long time of the fact that it is so diverse and at the same time, so stable um, and increasingly economically successful. And, you know, historically, the U.S. has had a very close relationship with Ethiopia, especially in context of the region.
0: Good afternoon, Wolaku, To the people of Ethiopia, I'm proud to be the first US president to visit Ethiopia and tomorrow the first US president to address the African Union.
2: Ethiopia receives the largest amount of foreign aid money of any country in sub-Saharan Africa. That's in part because it's considered to be one of the most functional democracies in Africa. So I think if you asked a lot of diplomats in the region, they would not have predicted that of all the countries in the Horn of Africa, that this would be where we're dealing with the civil war. But the idea of dividing regions along different ethnic groups, while the system has worked for decades, there are analysts in the region who have said to some extent this is a ticking time bomb.
1: Wow. Okay. So what's actually happening right now?
2: Right. The fighting that's happening in Ethiopia right now is taking place between, on the one side, government backed forces, which is led by the country's prime minister. And on the other side, fighters from a northern state called Tigray. The war seemed to escalate out of nowhere for many people, but obviously there's a lot of history there. Okay. So for 30 years, the country was ruled by a political party called the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. They took power in the 90s after overthrowing a communist regime and they established the TPLF government. The leadership was made up of Tigrayans, and they're an ethnic group from this northern region. And they make up only 6 or 7% of the population of Ethiopia. So they're obviously a minority group. Right. During their rule, the TPLF brought stability, they brought development, but they also became more and more authoritarian. There have
1: been mass demonstrations in Ethiopia's largest regions, Oromia and Amhara, in recent months with protesters calling for political and economic reforms and an end to state corruption.
2: And so naturally, resentment from the country's much bigger ethnic groups against them as a minority rule government grew. And then in 2018... The new prime minister, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, has been sworn in. A young politician, Abiy Ahmed, who comes from two of the country's biggest ethnic groups the Oromo and the Amhara, he became prime minister. He immediately tried to counter TPLF dominance, he consolidated political parties, he launched a huge amount of reforms, and he created his own party that cut across ethnic lines. He ended a very long-running war with their neighbor Eritrea. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says a peace treaty signed by
1: Ethiopia and Eritrea is historic.
2: But at the time, he was celebrated. He was this international darling. Everybody's calling him a unifier and a peacemaker.
0: An activist, a military intelligence officer, an unpredictable politician, a peacemaker,
2: And actually, after just a year in office, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. The
0: Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2019 to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy
1: Ahmed Ali. You know, I actually remember that. And it's, it's strange to think about that because of what is currently going on in the country. When did things start to change?
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, the Nobel was just two years ago. So there's a huge sense of whiplash, really, from celebrating him and him making news around the world to now him being in the headlines again for being this brutal warmonger. So about a year ago, Abiy Ahmed started what essentially amounts to a war of revenge against the TPLF. At the time, he cited the pandemic as a reason to cancel upcoming elections in the region. He cut their budgets. He says that they started it because after sort of squeezing them, Tigrayan forces attacked a federal army post in the north. And he, of course, responded very severely.
1: Ethiopia's prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, had given the leaders of the dissident region a 72-hours ultimatum to lay down their arms or face a final assault on the regional capital, Mekele.
2: He bombed Tigray, he sent tons of federal troops into Tigray, and he replaced the leadership there.
1: Hundreds have been killed in fighting and airstrikes that erupted, sending about 40,000 refugees into neighboring Sudan.
2: And that's how all this violence that we're seeing now actually started, really as a fight that was waged by Abiy Ahmed against the TPLF leadership. But of course, it was the Tigrayan civilians who were really being attacked. And tens of thousands of Tigrayans immediately fled in that first month or two of the conflict. So Abiy Ahmed said that it would all be over in the span of a month. He called it a quick three-week law and order operation. Obviously, that went very far off the rails. And since then, thousands have been killed. More than 2 million people have been internally displaced. And there's been a communications shutdown and a blockade against humanitarian aid going into Tigray. So hundreds of thousands of civilians are estimated to be starving. Again, it's hard to get hard figures and facts in terms of the scale of the suffering in Tigray. But it's important to note that, again, while he's framing this as a fight against the leadership, that it's everyday Tigrayans who have borne the brunt of all this violence. And that is why he's been accused of this ethnic-based violence against them as a people. So, This
1: goes from a supposedly three-week rejiggering of how things work in the country to something much bigger. It seems like Abiy's military offensive in Tigray, you know, those airstrikes and whatnot, that's what really causes this ramping up where the Tigrayan forces mobilize to try and strike back.
2: Yeah, so the Tigrayan forces were fighting back against the government. And then last June, they had a major victory. They forced Abiy's troops out of Tigray. And then they launched operations in the region next door, a region called Amhara. And what that's done is turned this into a full-scale civil war now between two different regions. And Abiy seems panicked. He's now asked everybody, all civilians, to sort of join the fight and to take up arms against the TPLF.
1: Okay, so... In September, you finally go to Ethiopia. You finally get access after trying for months. What did you find there?
2: So, first of all, what we found was the prime minister and his team are really trying to tightly control access to the narrative. So what was clear was we were invited there under their terms. We were assigned a government minder from the Ministry of Communications. And we were fairly limited in terms of which towns we could go to. So we knew going into it that they wanted us to focus on the toll of the war, specifically on their side. But it's very hard to cover a war from, from one side, obviously. You know, both sides, not just the prime minister's office, has a certain level of propaganda going around about all of this. But to only be able to cover it from one side and to have our movements so sort of tightly controlled, um, of course, is extremely frustrating. And we had to sort of work within what their restraints were. So,
1: where do you actually end up going, and what did you see?
2: We were in the Amhara region. We went to a town called Debark. When we got there, we sort of happened upon a mass funeral that was going on for about 11 or 12 young men. And there were people carrying caskets through the town to a burial site followed by a huge procession that was basically the entire town. So it was an extremely emotionally intense sort of procession and and funeral, obviously. People were crying and shouting. And we learned that the fighters being buried that day had hardly been trained. So they had rushed to the front lines at the urging of politicians in the town who said the TPLF are coming for the Amhara people and you have to protect your own people. And that's really the narrative that we encountered day after day that people are using to sort of whip these young and untrained men up into a war frenzy. The Ethiopian government is making use of that to get these local men to fight for them. Directly after the burial, we were driving through a city called Bahir Dar, and we saw this truck. All these young guys are hopping on the truck. Some are sort of laughing and seemingly making the split-second decision to hop on the truck with their friends. And then we realized that that's actually the Amhara Special Forces, and that they're recruiting them to go to the front line to fight for the government. So from a megaphone on the top of this truck, a voice was calling out just on loop. They were playing the recording, saying things like, you know, join the cause, register right now, hop on our truck and join our forces and sort of do your part. And young men really were. And officials say that recruits are flooding in. We, of course, wondered, seeing this so much in the region, Whether the government strategy was just to sort of collect as many young men as possible, untrained young men, and sort of just throw bodies and sheer numbers at Tigrayan forces, and having just been at that funeral, you know, the natural thought that our team was having was these guys are likely not going to make it.
1: So what had been a regional conflict is now engulfing larger parts of the country, right? Spiraling out further. What did that look like on the ground?
2: So there was another town that the government very much stressed that we should go to. It's a village called Chena, and the government says at least 200 civilians were killed there in a massacre by Tigrayan forces. Okay. So we understood that them sort of pushing us to go there was that they they wanted us to see what the Chagrayans were doing to them. And one thing that was really tricky about trying to cover this massacre fairly is the question of who's a civilian and who's a combatant, because Chagrayan forces say that they only killed people who were armed, and the government is saying, no, they killed innocent civilians and farmers. It, but it's a context where it's very difficult to understand, okay, who's a civilian and, and who is a fighter? It's a very blurry
0: line. In Chenna,
2: we spoke to a man named Jember Berle. He's a farmer. His brother and his brother's entire family were killed in this massacre. He tells me that his town was surrounded, that the fighting started at about 3 a.m., and that anyone who was awake, like him, escaped, but that those who were sleeping were
0: killed.
2: He said that TPLF fighters first announced when they arrived they weren't going to kill any farmers, but he said then they just started shooting and killing people. So I walked with Jember through these grassy fields and these really beautiful hills covered with wildflowers. It's really a stunning place, and that's where he was describing a lot of the fighting that took place. This field is where the TPLF first descended on the village and where most of the battle happened, and we're sort of stepping over, and he's pointing out exposed limbs covered in mud and sort of pieces of clothing that belonged to the fighters. Oh, geez. It's so open, but still, every few meters, you're still smelling the smell of dead bodies. And we ended this walk at the gravesite of where he buried not only his brother, but six family members of his brother's family and dozens of other people who were killed that night. And when you were finding the bodies so quickly, one after the other, what kind of condition were they in? He told me that he found the bodies of his brother and other people from the village, that they had been shot execution-style in the head. He's pointing around and he's saying, this house, they're dead, that house, they're dead. Oh, a priest died over there. Down there, he's dead. So it was very intense, obviously, because you're still seeing the bodies of who he said were TPLF fighters, but also, as we're walking, he's just very casually, in a sense, mentioning, oh, yeah, you know, all of these people are dead. (laughs) And then he tells me they were sent to cleanse the Amhara ethnicity. It was certainly awful to hear the stories and the intensity of the violence that night. And at the same time as reporters, we were also aware that this visit was part of a government narrative. It's their sort of attempt to both sides the conflict to say, okay, the Tigrayans are also committing war crimes mm-hmm. against us. Mm-hmm. And while the stories that Jember was telling us were totally brutal, we also had to remember that the reality is the scale of abuses waged by the government against Tigrayans is much larger because, as we know, it was after Tigrayan forces attacked a federal military base that Abiy responded with this harsh military offensive targeting civilians. He later deployed militia fighters to sweep through Tigray, at which point that's when we really started to hear of the most gruesome attacks on civilians and as journalists of course we wanted to be able to assess the impact of the war accurately. After speaking to civilians we got unique access to a government-backed group that's accused of war crimes. It's a notoriously brutal militia and they don't speak to media and we traveled to a town near the front line to speak to them. That's after the break.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new
2: customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Okay, so there's a civil war going on in Ethiopia that really pits... Tigrayan forces against the federal government and you're there on the ground visiting all these villages where Tigrayan forces have killed civilians and you're speaking to people that the government sort of wants you to talk to, right? Right. But now you're finally getting a chance to actually talk to members of this militia that has been accused of going into Tigray and killing Tigrayan civilians there.
2: Right, exactly. We wanted to talk to these government-backed militias who were accused of war crimes, of killing and raping civilians. And we traveled to a town that was the closest town to the front line that we could get to. Um, It's sort of a mountainous region. And in the town itself, we were able to talk to this regional militia called the Fano, which is a group that's played a huge role in the conflict. Okay, so why are they involved in all of this? Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed actually called on the Fano very early in the conflict. They're battle ready, they're well trained, and because they're out of uniform, sending them actually lent a shield of deniability to the Prime Minister because he can still say that his troops didn't commit atrocities, even though the Fano were well documented to have committed atrocities. (laughs) We got rare access to a Fano commander named Agaye Admus, and he commands around two hundred men, and we went along with him and his men as they patrolled this area close to the front line and they kept reminding us that the TPLF was only, you know, three to five miles away. So I'm paraphrasing, but he told me that, yes, the Fano militia has fought alongside the federal army and police to defend this town from the Tigrayan forces. He told me that his militia is very motivated in their hatred against the Tigrayan forces. But I was also wondering about all of this government rhetoric against Tigrayans, and so I asked him about that. Do you think that that also motivates them to have some hatred towards the Tigrayan people? Again, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that their fight is with the TPLF specifically, not with the Tigrayan people. And he keeps telling me again and again that his militia has not attacked Tigrayans or Tigrayan villages and that they're only defending their towns. But there's a lot of evidence that in the early months of the conflict, the Fano did go into the Tigray region. If the Fano is a local militia meant to protect the local population, why was the Fano deployed into Tigray in the first months of the conflict? And he denies it. He says to me, the Fano didn't enter into Tigray. It was only the federal defense forces and the federal police. At this point, this is somewhat infuriating to me because to be honest, I have made several reporting trips to Sudan on the border with Ethiopia. And at one point, I was looking across the river that divides Sudan and Ethiopia, and I saw with my own eyes Fano militia members standing on the Ethiopian side, sort of taunting refugees who were fleeing. But all I could do with Commander Agaye is just keep pushing him on this issue. So you're saying it's people who fled from Tigray itself, who have said that it was Fano who attacked them there. So what do you say to that? And the commander basically says, that's not true. The Fano didn't attack or harm the people of Tigray. There is a lot of evidence that Fano was in Western Tigray. So
1: you're going back and forth with him. You're telling him, I have seen this. I know there is evidence. And he's just constantly denying it at every turn.
2: Exactly, and I was just a month out of another reporting trip where I met with several survivors of rape with really horrific stories that they blamed on the Fano. So I had, you know, real information, not just from Amnesty International reports, but from my own reporting, and he is continuing to deny it. And the violence against Tigrayan civilians has pushed American officials to call for sanctions. President Biden actually just sanctioned Ethiopia, cutting them out of this big trade program. And you said that the U.S. is Ethiopia's biggest humanitarian aid donor, right? So sanctions could have a significant effect. Exactly. And further sanctions are definitely not an empty threat.
1: The U.S. is set to hit three African countries with trade penalties over human rights violations and other concerns. Guinea, Mali, and Ethiopia will all be removed from an agreement that gives them duty free access to the U.S.
2: But Abiy has mostly ignored any U.S. pressure. And in response to the U.S.'s calls for sanctions and ceasefires and peace talks, Ethiopian politicians, including the prime minister, have just instead been ramping up anti American. When we were driving in the countryside at one point, we just sort of came upon this large group of people chanting, the United States should lift its hand from Ethiopia. TPLF is a terrorist organization. So they're basically
1: saying, like, stay out of this U.S. Like, this is our fight. And if you're not going to back us against the TPLF, at least just, you know, butt out.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's largely because the U.S., among other international countries, is the one saying there are atrocities and human rights violations verging on genocide going on here. And the Ethiopian government, on the other hand, is framing it as a sovereignty issue and just saying, let Ethiopians settle their own business, even if it means plunging their country into an ethnic conflict that could damage ethnic relations for decades. One of our last stops while we were in Amhara was at a religious ceremony, and it was at a holiday called Mescal that's celebrated by Christians across the country. The entire town was there, everybody's in white. There's dozens of Orthodox priests chanting. And you know, for about two or three hours, we watched all of these beautiful sort of religious music performances and people praying and priests sort of processing back and forth. At the same time, the speeches that were being given to the crowd were sort of rallying people around the war effort. And the mayor of the town was actually sitting there in his military fatigues, and he got up and gave a speech saying essentially that people need to band together to defeat the quote, enemy. And he basically wished and prayed for a victory over the TPLF. And this really struck me because this holiday is a pan-Ethiopian Christian holiday. So you have people in Amhara and Tigray celebrating it. And to me, it just seemed inflammatory to have a government official using the ceremony to call on people to fight. And actually, after all of the speeches, I got to talk to him. You say that you're praying for unity, but don't you think it's divisive that on a religious holiday that's being celebrated by all Ethiopians, the message that you're sending is about eradicating the enemy and fighting the junta? And he says to me, yes, our faith does preach unity. However, the enemy is here to destroy us. On the one hand, you're saying the fight is not against the Tigrayan people. On the other hand, you're using words that might incite people against Tigrayan people. So he says to me, basically, that anybody who supports the TPLF is the enemy of Amhara and of all of Ethiopia. And he ended by saying, we fight until the end, we will win.
1: OK, so this does really seem, you know, given all that context, like the language of ethnic cleansing, right? Or, or at least language that could
2: incite it. Exactly. They're using words like we have to weed out the cancer and we have to weed out the junta. And the TPLF is a political party that does have a lot of support amongst everyday Tigrayans. And so calling on people to exterminate TPLF supporters is extremely worrisome.
1: So things are changing pretty quickly. What's happening right now on the ground?
2: So Tigrayan forces are apparently just over 100 miles from the capital. That's a huge advance for them. It clearly has the prime minister worried because he's called again for civilians in the capital to arm themselves. At the same time, they're rounding up Tigrayan civilians. They've arrested Tigrayans who work for the United Nations. Both sides are completely ignoring International calls and the African Union's calls for them to negotiate or call some kind of ceasefire. So it really doesn't seem like either side is going to back down soon.
1: Thank you so much, Julia, for explaining all of that. I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on your reporting as things evolve. Thank you. Yeah, we hope to go back to
2: Ethiopia soon. And of course, we're also watching closely.
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and
2: 365-day returns.
1: Special thanks to Julia Steers' team, including producer Amel Gatatfi. Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cuttrell, Sophie Casis, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, Julia Nutter, and Sarah Cabedo. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek, Adiza Egan, and Sam Greenspan. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, Natasha Jacobs, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is Senior Production Manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Duemros. I know podcast hosts say this constantly, but seriously, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.